Open your Bibles to 2 Corinthians chapter 4, and I'm already down a couple of minutes. I have a feeling I'm going to go overtime today. Uh, I don't know why I feel that, but, you know, what are you going to do, fire me? I mean, <laughs> goodness. 2 Corinthians, we're in this uh, last message that I'll be bringing you about, uh, you know, really 24 being uh, the best year you could possibly have and having more in 24. We've talked about it, uh, um, uh, we've talked about it financially, we've talked about it relationally. I want to talk about it emotionally this morning, emotionally. 2 Corinthians, Paul is writing to the church at Corinth, of course. He is encouraging them and exhorting them to press on in the Christian life. And he expresses gratitude for the saints there who have responded favorably to his previous letter, which of course is 1 Corinthians. And he demonstrates how God heals uh, the wounds of his people, really, in this letter in so many ways. And it shows his saving power in our weakness. And so 2 Corinthians chapter 4, I just want, I'm going to pick out a few verses to set a backdrop for what I want to share with you this morning as we talk about how can we be stronger emotionally. So follow along, hear the word of the Lord, 2 Corinthians chapter 4 verse 1, therefore, so everything that he's about to say is predicated on what he has already said in the first three chapters, therefore, having this ministry by the mercy of God we do not lose heart. Some of you this morning may feel that in some way, in some regard, you're losing heart a little bit because that's the world we live in. Go down to verse six. For God who said, let light shine out of darkness has shone in our hearts to give us the light of the knowledge of the glory of God in the face of Jesus Christ. We've been blessed that the gospel has come to us. Verse seven. But we have this treasure. Look at this. We have this treasure in jars of clay. We're fragile beings. We're fragile people. And why is that the case? To show that the surpassing power belongs to God and not to us. That there's nothing fantastic about us. There's no superstar status in the kingdom of God. Verse number eight. We are afflicted in every way, but not crushed. Perplexed, but not driven to despair. Persecuted but not forsaken, struck down but not destroyed, always carrying in the body the just death of Jesus so that the life of Jesus may also be manifested in our bodies. And then some wonderful, wonderful news if you are feeling afflicted or perplexed or persecuted this morning. Verse 17, for this light momentary affliction is preparing for us an eternal weight of glory beyond all comparison. As we look not to the things that are seen, but the things that are unseen. For the things that are seen are transient, but the things that are unseen are eternal. Amen? This is God's word. So the question is, how are we going to do better? How are we going to thrive this year emotionally, not just merely survive? And some of us do feel at times, I expect, afflicted and crushed and persecuted and struck down. And, and technology, frankly, I think it makes it worse. You know, you look at social media and you say, boy, everybody's got more interesting life than I do. You know, people are doing all this fun stuff. And then you realize that, you know, actually people don't really care about what you're doing. You know, every move you make and what you had for breakfast. And people just don't care. I guess they care if you're Taylor Swift. But for the most of us, most people just don't care, Right? And so Paul has anchored his life to Christ. That is the rudder of his life. And as he writes from Macedonia to, the, to uh, 
about, and this is only about 10 years before he will face his death at the hands of Nero in Rome. And he's establishing for the Corinthians how to live a life that uh, is shaped and steadfast by being anchored in Christ. Now, in this room, I know there's a, a variation of us. We've come from different places and experiences and victories and problems. I get that. And so this morning, here's what I want to do. I want to walk you through the decades of our lives, beginning with our teen years, because we've got some teens in here, and the 20s and 30s, and I'm going to walk you all the way through the decades of our life. And and I want to give for you a, a consideration, a question that I think you need to answer in that phase of your life. That I think if you answer this question, you will find that phase of your life uh, to be a little more manageable and a little more helpful, a little more hopeful. And you may be here and uh, say, well, you know, I'm 40s, so I'm just going to tune you out until I get to my 40s. But listen, you may have children or, or parents or grandparents that are in a different place, maybe even siblings in a different place, that are wrestling with some of these emotional big questions and you need to have sensitivity and an understanding to what they're wrestling with. So uh, I encourage you to listen through the generations. So I'll give you a question this morning and then a consideration for each decade. So that's where we're headed. Hope you have your notes there with you. So the teen years. Anybody have teens? Here's the question. Who am I and how am I changing? If you're a teenager or you have teens, they are becoming a a more fully orbed person with opinions and responsibilities and opportunities and understanding that comes apart from their parents, separate from their parents. And you're trying to figure out who you are and what will define you and, and trying to make important choices, everything from appearances and pursuits and spirituality and sexuality. And these are emotionally stirring issues in your life. And, and, and you're increasingly trying to figure yourself out in a society that's becoming increasingly fragmented and confusing. And you're saying, you know, well, what box do I fit into? And, and, you know, am I a conformist or a nonconformist? Let me just say this. You're not defined by anything or anyone apart from the creator's will and how he defines you. So what is the big question I think is very helpful to put to rest in your teen years? The big question is this, what is my world view? What is my world view? From which lens, as I live my life going forward, what lens will I look through to see the world? And any world view should answer three important questions. And if your worldview cannot answer these questions, it's probably an incomplete or inadequate worldview. The three questions are this, where did I come from? What are my origins, right? Am I the product of a divine intervention in the creation of time and space? Or or am I some evolutionary product, you know, from the goo to the zoo to you? Where did I come from? Well, you know, where are my origins? The second thing is, where am I going? Is it just sort of live a day and, you know, try and make a go of it and, you know, just, you know, hey, you know, we're working for the weekend. Used to be an old song when I was a young guy. Where where am I going? And then the final thing is, why am I here? Am I simply here to make a living and accumulate stuff and, and, and sort of earn my way 
get an education, get married, whatever that looks like. Where did I come from? Where am I going? Why am I here? Let me give you an anchor verse for that. Romans 1.20, for his invisible attributes, namely his eternal power and divine nature, have been clearly perceived ever since the creation of the world in the things that have been made. So they are without excuse. We can see God everywhere. Uh, I have friends that are atheists. I have friends that are agnostics. My problem is I don't have enough faith to be an atheist. I simply don't. You're in your teen years. I encourage you, determine, anchor your life to a worldview. Parents, parents, listen carefully. Let your kids wrestle with this. You cannot co-opt them in. They're going to have to galvanize their own understanding of the Christian worldview or whatever worldview it is. You cannot force them into this. Two things you can do. You can love them like crazy and pray like mad. Do those two things. You're in your 20s. Some of you are in your 20s. The big question in your 20s emotionally, what will I do with my life and with whom? This is what 20-year-olds are thinking about. You you know, they're thinking, what am I going to do with my life? And am I going to stay single? Am I going to get married? What is it going to look like? What is my life going to look like? And the pressure in our world can come from others and society to have this wrestled to the ground. And that can wreak emotional havoc. I talk to 20-year-olds all the time and they say, you know, if my mother asked me one more time if I'm getting married, she won't be at the wedding. And this can be discouraging. And uh, I, I, love, I love what Henry Ford said. He had a great statement. Henry Ford said this, he who walks with God always gets to his destination. Isn't that a great statement? So just keep walking with God and, 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 and you will get to where God has you to go. But I would encourage you that companions on the journey massively affect the journey. So choose wisely. Choose wisely. Proverbs 16.9, it's a verse that my wife and I chose when we first went into ministry 30 years ago. The heart of man plans his way, but the Lord establishes his steps. And what do you do? Because I often meet 20-year-olds that are discouraged and they've banged into some obstacles and it's not becoming clear as far as do I get married and with whom will I get married and and what am I going to do with my life? Let me just share with you something. I, several years ago, I went with some guys and on a big fancy sailboat and I sailed the North Channel. And uh, I had no business being there because they all had money and I didn't have money. And, uh, but they had this great big sailboat and they invited me along. I know nothing about sailing. But we got talking about sailing on, those, on that sailboat those days. And uh, we got talking about what do you do if you're out sailing and you get lost? You know, because that's pretty disorienting. And uh, so a couple of the guys that were very serious sailors and owned these big sailboats said this, you know, you do a few things. And I thought, man, that, that has application to life. If you're out and you're disoriented and you're discouraged, here's what you do. First thing you do is you stop. Stop sailing. Just stop. Take some time out. Just listen. Exhale. Push out the noise of life. Just say, you know, hold on. I, I'm just going to stop. I'm not going to, you know, I'm frenetic. The second thing you do is you steady your boat. Just make sure everything is in order on your boat. Am I safe and in a healthy environment? 
so that I will be able to focus out on the horizon about moving forward. Am I worried about drowning? Is, are things in order? Listen carefully. If you're drowning, you're not dreaming. If you're drowning, you will not be dreaming about what God has for you in the future. The third thing they talked about is you study, you study your compass. In other words, you go back to that which you know to be true. That's why it's so important in your teen years to establish your worldview because you go back to where you came from, why you're here, and where you're going. And that steadies your boat. And then finally, the last thing you do is after you've done all that and you've got reoriented, then you seek the wind again. You seek the wind again. What is God doing that he's called me to join that I can now hear more clearly? You know, my son-in-law, he owns a surfboard manufacturing company in Sydney, Australia, in the north beaches of Sydney, Australia. He said something to me one day that was very interesting. He's a devout follower of Jesus. He said, you know, we surfers, we can catch a wave, but we can't create one. Only God can create one. And that's what you do. You, you catch the, the wind that God has for you. What's the consideration? What's the consideration in your 20s? Here's what I would encourage you. Remember these three things. I have time. Just stop. I have time. I will listen. I'm going to have my ear pressed against the chest of Jesus. And I will trust. I will trust whatever he has for me. In your 30s, what's the big question that you need to wrestle to your ground, to the ground? It's this, how do I manage my commitments and responsibilities? In our 30s, life can become much more frenetic. I was at my son's house yesterday, I took my two grandsons out for breakfast, and uh, I didn't know you could eat Dream Whip with your hands, but apparently you can, in a restaurant nonetheless. We had a great time together, but when I took them back, I, I remembered, you know, two, two boys, five and seven, and my son who's a pastor, and his wonderful wife, and the dog and everything, and I'm like, life is frenetic here, I am old, right? In your 20s, it's kind of like food and fun, right? And now it's bills and babies, or it can be in your 30s, right? And we can feel pulled in many directions. Some of you here are young families. You've got kids and cars and commitments and mortgages and the complexities and responsibilities become greater and greater. If you are here this morning and you're a young parent, listen very carefully. Immediately, immediately begin to establish the non-negotiables for your spiritual and emotional health for you and your family. Draw a line in the sand and say, we as a family, guess what? Our kids are not going to be the best instrumentalist, cheerleader, football player, hockey player. You, you, you set up some boundary markers so that you're living lives on purpose. Way too many people are living reactionary lives. They're reacting to everything. Don't live vicariously through your children. I've said before, don't try and take out of your kids what God didn't put in them. But establish those non-negotiables in your 30s and say, no, no, these are the boundary markers for our lives because we're not going to get into frenetic living. Here's the consideration for you in your notes. I must determine my bandwidth and my priorities. You, you gotta say, we can't do everything. So what, what's our bandwidth, what can we do, and what is most important? And if you are a Christian, that will be seen through the lens of a Christ-centered worldview. And that will allow you to manage the chaos. The verse I want to give you in your 30s 
if you are tired, is the first call of Jesus. And the first call of Jesus is found in Matthew 28. Come to me all who labor and are heavy laden and I will give you rest. The first call of Christ is to come and to rest in him. In your 40s, any of you in your 40s? Here's the big question. There probably is, you're pretending you're in your 30s. but Okay, here we go. Here's the big question. Why do I struggle with a sense of disappointment? I, I talk to people in their 40s and often they begin to realize and embrace the reality that their life will have boundaries. They're not going to be the, the, what they thought they were going to be. They're not going to own the house that maybe they thought they were going to be. That there's boundaries and unavoidable burdens that come into our life and they begin to have a little sense of disappointment in that. So here's a consideration. Let me give it to you right up front. Here's a consideration. I cannot measure my life at any one time in my life. Your life is a continuum. God sees it from the beginning and to the end. He sees the eternal nature of your life and the temporal nature of it here on earth. And our success in God's mission is never measured by the world's metrics. It's measured by faithfulness and obedience. That's what matters to God. Who we are and not what we have or where we work or the house we live in. Will Rogers said, don't let yesterday use up too much of today. One of my uh, spiritual mentors when I was a younger man was a man by the name of Dr. Robertson McQuilkin. And he used to say, don't long for a day that God has not given you. You can only live in today. You, you can't relive yesterday and you can't live tomorrow. It hasn't come. So you live in today and you say, Lord, help me make the best of today. Verse I want to give you is back to where we were a few weeks ago in Hebrews chapter 12. Verse one, therefore, since we are surrounded by so great a cloud of witnesses, let us lay aside every weight and sin which so clings so closely and let us run with endurance the race that is set before us, looking to Jesus, the founder and perfecter of our faith. If you're in your 40s, you may be experiencing some disappointment. Don't measure your life by today. You're in your 50s. You're in your 50s. The big question is this, I find people in their 50s. How do I generate fresh excitement in the second half of my life? When I turned 50, I said to my wife, well, I'm in the second half of my life. She goes, oh, you are, right? Eh? You, know, you know a lot of people that are 100? <laughs> now I'm 60. I don't use that anymore because I know very few that are 120. Sadly, too many people in our world when they get into their 50s, you know what happens, and I see this, I saw this as a pastor, is instead of getting better with age, they tend to get a little more bitter. Get a little more bitter. And it takes place often in their 50s as life is pretty well set and the energy and ability to make massive shifts in your life tend to be gone. And what adds to that is by the time you get into your 50s, you've picked up some baggage, some emotional baggage. Some people have a lot of baggage. They have you know, a lot of baggage and a carry-on. And they let that baggage begin to fester and it can be corrosive to the soul because they've been dinged in life. And so in your 50s, what you have to do is offload that baggage 
or you're going to carry that and it's going to get worse. And, and you, you do that through several th- ways. You actually do it through forgiveness. You actually do it through your own repentance for when you have been a part of your own pain. You do it in thanksgiving. You do it through wisdom and taking those desert experience, those wilderness experiences, and through wisdom saying, Lord, what is it that that is shaping my life and how do I not waste that wilderness experience and how do I take it from sort of emotional baggage to something that is helpful and hopeful in my life? Here's the consideration in your 50s. This will help you to avoid that bitterness. Ask yourself this question. Am I involved in legacy-leaving activities? Am I involved in legacy-leaving activities? Or, or am I still frenetically trying to make a way in this world and, 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 I'm, and am I shooting for more of stuff that is going to pass and is gonna wither like the grass? Colossians 1, 10, 11. Walk man, walk, to walk in a manner worthy of the Lord, pleasing to him, bearing fruit. That's kingdom fruit in every good work and increasing in the knowledge of God. In your 50s, make sure you don't get bitter. Make sure you get better. And position yourself for a vibrant and hopeful future. In your 60s, this is, this is me because I just turned 60. Yikes. In your 60s, the question is this. How long can I keep doing it, things in my life that have defined me? How long can I keep doing things in my life that have defined me? Because in your 60s, your kids are, are usually gone if they're still in the basement, you might want to move them out. Okay, change the locks. We're facing, many of us, when we get into our 60s, we're facing the loss of uh, our life, life's work that in many ways defined us, especially uh, sometimes it's very defining for people. Uh, Alvin Toffler, some of you may have read one of his famous books in high school. A lot of kids did in high school. I don't know if you still do. He said this, for many people, a job is crucial psychologically over and above the paycheck. By making clear demands on their time and energy, it provides an element of structure around which the rest of their lives can be organized. That happens, and sometimes when that goes away, I've seen it especially in men. A guy that I grew up with, I saw about a year ago, he was a police officer his whole life, and we had a little get-together of uh, high school kids that graduated at the same time, and Pete came. And I said, Pete, did you just retire from the police force? And I thought that was the worst question I could have asked him because his face sunk and, and he was like, yeah, I don't know what to do with myself. I was re- actually quite worried about him. Uh, you know, a lady, a lady was asked, her husband, Morty, retired. And somebody said to her, hey, Carol, I heard Morty retired. And she said, oh yeah, he retired. And they said, Carol, what's it like now that Morty's retired? And she says, now that Morty's retired, it's twice as much Morty and half as much money. <laughs> right? Things change. What's the consideration in your 60s? Listen carefully if you're in your 60s. How should I be preparing if I considered that my best contribution may be yet to come? Kingdom contribution. I want you to know that I meet over and over and over again people in their 60s that are now making their best kingdom contribution. They're no longer confusing success with significance because so often people in their 60s begin to retool and they stop doing things that are good and they retool and they begin to invest in people. 
And if you are in your 60s, your biggest kingdom contribution could be at your doorstep. 1 Thessalonians 2.8, I read this verse, I think, a week or two ago. Having so fond an affection for you, they're talking about Paul, we were ple- or Paul is talking, we were pleased, well pleased to impart to you not only the gospel, but our own lives. Paul said, we're investing our lives in you. If you're in your 60s, and you're wondering about the things in life that have defined you, say to yourself, you know what, my best contribution may be ahead of you. And it can be if you want it to be. You're in your 70s. Some of you are here this morning and you're in your 70s. In your 70s, the big question is this. How do I deal with the increasing sense of loss in my life? Because when you get into your 70s, some of you well know that some things begin to be absent. Our kids become self-sufficient. Our grandkids, who we spent time with in our 50s and 60s, are often now heading off to college or off to careers. They're not around. We face the loss of our life's work has now, in most cases, ended and, and all of a sudden, we are facing loss. What's the consideration? And this, this will seem so rudimentary, but often we don't do it. The consideration is, I must seek the comfort of God. And if you need the comfort of God, you know how you find it? You ask for it. God, I, I need to know your presence. I need you to comfort me. Make sure you've dealt with the emotional baggage we talked about a couple minutes ago. Thankfulness is actually the antidote for anxiousness. Most people don't think about that because it reminds you of God's faithfulness. Colossians 3.15, and let the peace of Christ rule in your hearts to which indeed you were called in one body and then three little words at the end, and be thankful, and be thankful. If you're in your 80s, 90s, 100s, the question you must ask yourself and the emotional thing that takes a toll is what is my place in a world that considers me weak and obsolete? And I've talked, I've met with seniors in the final stretch of life, 80s and onward, and they're saying, you know, I I feel marginalized and traumatized. I, I feel like, what's my place? Psalm 71, 9, do not cast me off in the time of old age. It's a biblical imperative. We're to honor people. Be encouraged. George Bernard Shaw was 94 when one of his plays was first produced. Benjamin Franklin, who was a framer, of course, of the United States Constitution, that happened when he was 81. Golda Meir became prime minister of Israel at age 71. If you're not dead, you're not done. If you're not dead, you're not done. What's the consideration, friends? What's the consideration? It's simply this. If this is your stage in life, in Christ, the absolute best is yet to come. In Christ, the absolute best is yet to come. John 17, 24. Father, I desire that they also, whom you have given me, may be with me where I am to see my glory. The best is yet to come in Christ. The best is yet to come. Remember we used to sing, what have I to dread, what have I to fear? Leaning on the everlasting arms. I have blessed peace with my Lord so near. Leaning on the everlasting arms. 
If you're in your 80s and beyond, the best is yet to come without a doubt. Now let me finish with the story and I'll be done. This applies to everybody, so I'm going to give you a closing takeaway principle that applies to all of us, whether you're here this morning and you're 18 or you're 88. Uh, some of you may remember, especially if you're younger, you may remember a number of years ago, a band called Coldplay came out with a song called Fix You. Anybody remember that song? A few of you remember that song? It was written by lead singer Chris Martin of Coldplay. He wrote the song for his then wife, she's not his wife anymore, he wrote the song for his then wife, Gwyneth Paltrow. And the reason why he wrote the song is because her father had just died and she was incredibly broken and he didn't know what to do and how to help her. And so he wrote the song, Fix You. Now, interestingly, Chris Martin knew something about being fixed and if you could be fixed because he grew up in a very devout Christian home. He's basically stepped away from his Christian faith, but he had the seeds of faith. His mother and father loved the Lord immensely. And he talks about that, but he's kind of tried to figure that out. But he knew that people are broken and people become broken and there's brokenness in our world. He understood that and so he wrote to, to Gwyneth this song, when you try your best but you don't succeed, when you get what you want but not what you need, when you feel so tired but you can't sleep, stuck in reverse. That sounds like what we read in Corinthians, doesn't it? When the tears come streaming down your face, when you lose something you can't replace, when you love someone but it goes to waste, could it be worse? Lights will guide you home and ignite your bones and I will try to fix you. Well, that's noble and that's altruistic, Chris, but I'm not sure you can fix anybody. None of us can. And what's really interesting about this song to me, if you ever watch the music video, because there's a well-known music video, and in the music video, Chris Martin is actually running around the city of London, England. I thought I'd better say that, being as I'm in London, Ontario. And the neighborhood he's running around, if you know London at all, is called Charing Cross. And Charing Cross is a geographical center point in the city of London, and I've been to London several times. There at Charing Cross, five roads converge. Uh, one, the mall takes you, if you go down that, you end up at Buckingham Palace. If you take Whitehall, you end up, you go down there, you end up Westminster uh, Bridge, Northumberland, takes you along the River Thames, and it's the center of London, and people that get their bearings from Charing Cross. And often, people in London will say, well, and interestingly, interestingly, they call it the cross. They say, well, you go to the cross, and then if you take that, you'll go down, that's how you get to Buckingham Palace. There's a very neat story that I heard not that long ago. And it was about a little boy, three years old. <clears throat> and he was in this neighborhood that Chris Martin's running around. And Chris Martin's running through Charing Cross and then he runs into the stadium. You might remember that, you know, and he's, the song kind of swe swells. And, 
But I heard a story of this three-year-old kid and he's walking around this neighborhood and he's lost. And the tears are running down his face. He's crying his heart out. And a Bobby, you know what a Bobby is? A police officer there in London sees this little guy wandering, kids looking around like this and tears are running down his face. Doesn't know what to do. And the Bobby looks down at the little guy and he says, hi. And the little guy looks up and says, hi. He said, you okay? No, I'm lost. He says, what, what's your name? He says, my name is Thomas. What's your last name, Thomas? I don't know. I'm lost. And the Bobby gets down and he says, uh, do you know how to get to your house? He says, no, I don't, know how to, I don't know how to get home. And Bobby says, you know your last name, eh? No. And then this little kid looks up at the Bobby and he says this. He says, mister, if you can take me to the cross, I can find my way home. If you take me to the cross... I could find my way home. That's a true statement. In the disappointments and the discouragement of my life, I go back to the cross. The cross gets me home. When I survey the wondrous cross on which the Prince of Glory died, my richest gain I count but loss and poor contempt on all my pride. See from his head, his hands, his feet, sorrow and love flow mingled down. Did ever love and sorrow meet or thorns compose so rich a crown? At the cross we realize again that we were purchased there by the priceless blood of God's only son. At the cross, we see our sin is greater than we ever believed and God's love is deeper than we can possibly imagine. At the cross, we know that which God bought with his son's blood, God will protect, God will sustain and he has us in his sights and he has us in his thoughts. Return often to the cross. If you're here this morning and you don't know this man, Jesus, I want you to know he's the only person that can fix you. For this light and momentary affliction, brothers and sisters, is preparing us for an eternal weight of glory beyond all comparison. Amen? Amen. Amen. Let us pray. Father God, we love you. Father, we are grateful beyond expression for the cross on which the Prince of Glory died for us in our place. Father, may King Jesus and his cross be central to the work and ministry and life of West Park Church this day and in the days ahead. May you use this church in ways that are so profound and supernatural that only you could get any glory in that, for you alone are worthy. Lord Jesus, we love you. 
We love you. We want you to hear that this morning from our lips. And it's in the king's name we pray. And for, for his glory we yearn. Amen and amen.